beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. This episode contains discussion of domestic violence and murder. Please take care while listening. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. I recorded this conversation you're about to hear six weeks ago or more, and ever since I have been thinking about it and wanting to share it with you because I believe the topic is so important. I've joked here before that I was into true crime before true crime was cool, and that is absolutely true. Starting way back in elementary school, I became fascinated with historic disasters like the sinking of the Titanic. And then when I got a bit older, like in high school and college, I started reading a lot of books about serial killers and famous murders. This was one of my very favorite genres of entertainment for a really long time, well into the 2000s and early 2010s. At the time, this was a pretty small corner of the reading world. I had to search for these books and the TV shows that I liked, like Court TV, Forensic Files. They were all on the lowest budget cable channels. This was not something that most people admitted loving. Still, it never occurred to me to be uncomfortable with these true crime stories from an ethical point of view until the explosion of popularity in this genre. When Serial the Podcast came out in 2014, I was just as obsessed as everyone else. And from there, this category of content just exploded everywhere. Suddenly, true crime was prestige TV with documentaries and bestsellers and dozens upon dozens of podcasts. It's been almost a decade since the true crime genre took off the way that it has, and so many of us spend a lot of time consuming murder content, falling asleep to grisly details, gobbling up with glee the most horrific crimes that one human can perpetrate on another. And while most of us think about the victims sympathetically, of course, have you ever actually talked to someone whose loved one was murdered? And would that change your perspective on true crime as entertainment? I knew I wanted to have Amy Chesler on the podcast as soon as I heard her story. We actually met last spring while this show was on hiatus, and Amy and I were both on a panel speaking at a conference. The panel we were on, it was actually about writing and publishing. It was not about the content we were writing about, but I heard just a tiny piece of Amy's story, and she graciously sent me her book in the mail when the conference was over. In 2007, Amy's mother was murdered in their home by her brother. 
She details this awful, awful tragedy and the events before and after in her book, Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing. I read this book in one sitting and I immediately asked Amy to come have a conversation with me before I'd even relaunched this show. And in that conversation, which you'll hear today, Amy surprised me over and over again by her take on people consuming true crime as entertainment. I won't spoil it for you. I want you to hear it in her words, and I will link to her book and her blog and her social media, all in the show notes because I know you'll want to know more. And even more exciting news, Amy is working with Tiffany Reese, the creator of the Something Was Wrong podcast, a show that focuses on victims of crime, and their new project together will be designed to empower victims and create change in the true crime space. Knowing both Amy and Tiffany, I feel sure they're cooking up something amazing. And as soon as they announce more details, I will share it with you. Now to my conversation with Amy B. Chesler, author, award-winning blogger, and actress about the ethics of true crime as entertainment. I do want to start off by saying I read your book on the airplane and I had other work to do. Like I was like, okay... I'm sort of famous for doing these 20-minute timers for my reading sessions. I was like, all right, I'm going to need to read this book. I'm going to read it for 20 minutes. Then I'm going to do my work. And I didn't put it down. I couldn't put it down the whole plane ride. I read the whole thing, not all in one session, but almost because it was so compelling. And so I just want to just tell you that from the very beginning. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for letting us read your story because I know it's, it's difficult. Thank you for leaving yourself open to it. I, it uh, that never touches me any less or differently, no matter who says it to me. I'm just, that fills my heart with so much. I know it sounds really weird, but joy, even though it's such a miserable topic and a heartbreaking topic, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted to share it because it was healing just to get it out. And then it just, the reception of it was really healing too. So thank you. That's huge to hear. I I want my audience to sort of hear the bigger picture of your story or kind Mm -hmm. of the broad stroke. So first of all, just tell us a little bit about who you, Amy, are today. We're just going to work backwards, but I want to hear who Amy is today. Well, I am a mom, first and foremost. I have a daughter and a son who are my entire world. (sighs) Parenting, I say, is the loveliest slap in the face, but it really, I feel like it was what I was meant to do from... God from as early as I can remember. The other thing I really wanted to do was be a writer. And I grew up with that in mind. And that totally brings me to where I am. Although when they say, write what you know, I had no idea what I knew until I survived some really awful things. Without getting too much into them yet, it's hard to persist in today, Amy, or who I am today without acknowledging what I've been through. But I'm so I'm a mom. I'm a writer. I I think I'm an activist as well. I think that my experiences have taught me that things have to change always. Right. There's always a goal of evolving. And I think society as a whole should have that same goal. And I think I've made it my mission as a human being and a writer and a person in general to to contribute to society in that manner. Well, I would definitely call you an activist. We met when we were both on a panel together at Mom 2. It was actually a panel about publishing. But then just hearing a little bit about your story, your personal story, which didn't have anything to do with what we were there to talk about, like the publishing industry necessarily. But then to hear your personal story, I would absolutely classify you as an activist. And you're able to do it well because you're a good writer. And there's a million ways people can write or try to inspire action. And I think that you've married those two very well. Thank you. That's such a huge compliment, especially coming from you. I appreciate that. Okay, so it's, let's talk about how you became this particular type of activist and, and how it brought you to writing this story of your life. Like the, I mean, pardon me for saying, like the defining thing of your life, really? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really know that true crime memoir was even a genre. But then when I had to classify my book, I realized, yeah, my book, Working for Justice, is a true crime memoir, which in essence takes a portion of my life and kind of puts it under a magnifying glass. And when I tell people that, they're usually like, wait, that means it's a personal story in the true crime space? And yes, I I say that I am a survivor 
I'm a victim of domestic violence and I'm also a survivor. My mother, however, is not. And my book is about, in essence, not really the preceding years, although I, I lace in kind of vignettes of, of the abuse we faced over the years, but it takes the reader from the night my mom was murdered, which was September 25th, 2007, which oddly enough became America's National Murder Victims Remembrance Day, that exact day, coincidentally, which I kind of has infused me with strength every single day when I remind myself of that fact. It's kind of one of the reasons why I keep sharing our story too. So this, the, the book takes the reader from that evening of her murder through the consequent years that it took me to convict her admittedly guilty murderer, who was my brother, and who was also pretty abusive for the preceding 10 years before her murder as well. It's tough. It is. It's a, whew, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough not only because, not to laugh, but it's tough not only because it was a tough experience, but it's tough to actually realize. I think our story is a great prime example of a lot of holes in our system. And we saw that in the abuse my brother continued after he was in prison or jail, rather, and the abuse of our, his, the system and how the system kind of allowed him to abuse it and continue to abuse me. So it's not only tough because it's a tough story to swallow, but it's tough because it kind of pinpoints a lot of problems with our systems. It does. And I think it speaks to most murder and I wish I had this statistic in front of me, but most murder is domestic violence. Absolutely. Most, I think it's an exorbitant, I think it's almost like 60% of murder. And I think it's actually a greater percentage because if you really think about it, I'm not, I mean, not to get too dark, but even these grocery store shootings and these shoot, you know, that occur in, in public spaces, I think that's domestic violence too. That is somebody that we, you know, usually somebody from that community or that job coming and causing harm and abusing the people that they once interacted with or grew up with. And that's still domestic violence. So I, I actually argue that domestic violence is perhaps close to almost 100% of the causes of most murder. I mean, it is a lot. Stranger violence is rare. And I think we're not always taught that because stranger danger is like mm -hmm. such the thing that we're taught when we're little and we can't ever shake it, especially if, you know, we've been in situations where we're nervous or something. And not that we shouldn't always have our intuition. We should always be paying attention to our intuition and that kind of thing. But the real danger is so often in our homes or in our communities or in our like immediate circles. Mm -hmm. Did you know, and I'm just going to get right to it because I know this Go is like it. sensitive and I, I want to be sensitive to you talking about this tragedy. But you sort of hint in the book that as terrible as it was, it wasn't shocking that this occurred. Nope. So tell me a little bit more about the abuse, what your brother's various issues were that mm -hmm. led to that night. Gosh, well, like any story of abuse, unfortunately, it was cyclical and it was also it had a snowball effect. So, you know, what started smaller eventually grew over time. And I would say when I really look back on my brother's life, I think I explained this on something was wrong, actually, probably only there. But I think I see him being different quite early. I mean, like as early as I could remember having an older brother. And like, so when he was about probably five, I say like he used to sell treasure maps in the grocery store. He would draw fake treasure maps and then sell them. My mom would let him and she'd be like, oh, he's so entrepreneurial. And of course, at that time, that is. However, he learned to start manipulating people at a very young age. I see that. And then as he became a little bit more ostracized over the years, my dad was never really in the picture. And so he grew angrier over that. He grew angrier towards other people. And he used that manipulation towards other people in a more negative, harmful way. And we were always the first recipients and the worst recipients of his abuse. You know, it started, gosh... I would say like with holes being punched in the walls, he was really angry and he would be physically violent towards our environment and he would be verbally and mentally abusive towards us. I have lots of slurs were thrown, you know, bitch and slut were things I heard probably for the first time from my brother at a probably 11 or 12. It continued. He eventually sexually, I would say, 
molested me. I mean, those words are hard and I kind of explain it in my book, but he was so shrewd in his manipulation. He kind of manipulated me to be sexually active in front of him without touching me. So he could kind of get away with not being guilty of anything per se. And so that is a snowballing of the abuse as well. Right after that, when that ended, and I threatened to tell my mom, or my mom kind of found out not about that specific abuse, but his very nuanced hidden abuse that I never really reported, things got really physically dangerous at that point. So when the covert abuse stopped, it became very, very overt. He broke a glass shower door, I remember one time, in just a fit of rage. He would push my mom. My mom was handicapped at one point, and he very much became physically violent at that point because he knew she couldn't fight back at all. And it grew to a point where, I mean, like six months before her murder, he had pulled a aerosol can and a lighter on her and then jumped from the two store, the second story of our home in Calabasas onto the driveway and, and ran on foot away. It was always just very dramatic like that as time went on. So you were right. Absolutely. It wasn't it was it was shocking to our community to a certain degree. And still, it was shocking to find my mom, but it was not surprising that it happened, unfortunately. My mom was a really <laughs> Jewish woman. She had a lot of anxiety, I guess. <laughs> she had a, a life insurance policy for every possible method of death, like a heart attack policy, a cancer policy. And the only one that didn't name my brother was a murder policy, an accidental death policy. And it covered murder. It was very small, but it was the only one that only paid out to me. And that was the only one that paid out, actually. So she knew it was coming. There was a level of preparedness she had to take because nothing, nothing was working. Well, what did that do to you? Because you're here to tell us mm -hmm. and to her in your memory to live with that kind of fear of violence. If you never knew what he was going to do. It was terrifying to a certain degree. As it got worse, though, my mom let me have a lot of freedom. So not a lot. Like I, 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 there was no curfew because I was I didn't go to parties. Like I'm not, I wasn't that kid. <laughs> I literally did not go to a single party in high school. I didn't know they existed except on the movies. <laughs> but it was very much like I had a job. She let me work. I would go and sleep over friends' houses. She let me be out because she knew how toxic it was, and she knew that there wasn't for anything for her to do. You know, we tried in Calabasas in the '90s. I, that was before Columbine. So people didn't really know children could hold this toxicity. I think there was this unspoken phenomenon going on and Calabasas didn't know what to do. They would hold him in the drunk tank for a few days and then throw him back to, to us. Eventually, he graduated going to Men's Central Jail, as I explained in my book. But, you know, months there and our legal process is so slow, nothing would happen. And my mom would be aching at visiting him in prison and, and drop the charges. Doctors would quit seeing him because he was verbally abusive to them. It was just a really layered situation where at every turn we had no resources. And it was it was very. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting experience. But again, my mom kind of let me have as as unnatural as those experiences were, or maybe not unnatural, but as toxic as those experiences were. My mom also fortified a lot in me and let me believe I could do anything. I started working in high school for Corey Feldman. <laughs> like there were just experiences that were not normal that helped me anchor to, to something else. You know, there was something better in life. And my mom always kind of helped me facilitate that, which was, yeah, so strengthening, I think. And that's probably what helped me carry through those really bleak times. It must have been so isolating for her to try and get help, to try and fortify you, you know, to what I mean, I'm sort of filling in this blank, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, trying to like maybe keep friends or I know she had a job or whatever, while this other thing is so consuming in your brain and heart. I mean, it must have been so isolating. You make me cry right now because no one ever talks about that. Everybody kind of victim shames the victim after the fact. A very com common reaction is, but I mean, there was no one. Couldn't somebody have helped her? Or why did she keep letting him back? And as a parent, I know I would let her, my children back over and over again now. And I've forgiven my mom for a lot because as a parent, I have a grand perspective. But nobody stops and really thinks about how tough it must have been. And I think that's been a saving grace. Becoming a parent has allowed me to see that because I have so much more support than she ever had. 
some of it I get with my openness and I and my mom wasn't quite that person. She taught me to be that person, but she wasn't. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I saw it. I mean, I think probably some of her disabilities were probably born from trauma and stress and terror in the home with my brother. And maybe still in that time, keeping up with appearances, you know, you'd... Yeah, my mom was never with that woman. Oh. <laughs> she, she wasn't... I don't think she ever had time to waste on doing that. But I think it was more, you know, my mom was Israeli and Israeli culture is tough by nature. And therapy, I think it a lot for a lot of immigrants, I think also it's just therapy isn't the first thing you go to. And it's it's a luxury a lot of times. So I don't think that she even knew or had time to to give herself support. It was just about my brother and myself. Mm hmm. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. You tell a couple of stories in the book, including on the day she was murdered, about when he was being violent at home or maybe she could sense something was brewing with him, that they would both call you or she would call you and sort of make sure that you were away or when were you coming home or they were always sort of keeping tabs on you. And you don't explain that fully in the book, but I was reading that as a mother of mm. her protecting you, just checking on you as she must have been nervous or, or whatever her emotions would be. And then on the day that she was killed, both your brother and your mom called you several times throughout that day. Can you tell us a little more about that day? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it's interesting what you just said, because I don't know if I've ever looked at it that way. I think sometimes, for sure, she probably was trying to protect me. I think the time he assaulted her before he murdered her with the aerosol can and the lighter, she was definitely calling to protect me. And in this moment, perhaps you're making me realize that. But that day was really interesting for a lot of reasons. I was working late and, you know, we all lived together. I was 22. I had never moved away for college. My brother never moved out. He was 25. And I was working. Like I said, I was working late. And I was getting a wrap, kind of like a succession of phone calls from them, kind of trying to check in when would I be home. I think I assumed my mom was wanting me to be home. But now that I recollect, perhaps not. My brother definitely wanted me home. For him, I was kind of like, and for both of them, to a certain degree, I was kind of like a fulcrum. I think of myself as like I was the balancing act between the two of them sometimes because my mom knew the treatment she was receiving was was not right. I just don't think she knew how to, you know, she came from an age where like yelling back was, you know, yeah, I'm the parent. If I yell, you be quiet. I know better now. We know better now. We know murder doesn't happen because of yelling, but... Yeah, they were just, they were, there was a fight going on. I don't know what exactly what it was about. They never really needed a topic to fight about, but they were calling me kind of on and off, you know, switching off between each other, saying, when are you going to be home? I think I explained in the, in the book, I, I know I explained in the book that I was on a date, I was working. I also, oddly enough, got a tattoo that evening, which will never leave my mind, but I got a little peace sign tattooed that evening. 
next to the heart was which was the last tattoo my mom saw that I got. I just need to stop you because the fact that you got a peace tattoo. I know. That day is I mean, you can't even like call that symbolic. It's like a flashing neon sign of it's not even symbolism. It's like it just is. It's crazy. And I think also because people don't realize when I talk about this, they're like, how are you so happy? You're such a joyful person still. My mom's murder was awful, like the worst thing in the world. I don't think I'll ever experience God willing. I never experience anything like that ever again. However, it was also a releasing of my being bound to my brother. Right. Mm -hmm. He was my abuser for so many years. And then I was finally given the space to really have the hard boundaries my mom couldn't have. People are like, oh, that's weird. A peace sign on your mom's murder night. But like for me, it really was the worst turning point in my life. But it was a turning point towards I could choose peace from then on. I didn't have peace (laughs) always, but I had the choice of giving myself peace every day after. So it was really not only symbolic, you're right. It was like a, yeah, there are some really weird things that happened, but that's one of them. Yeah. So eventually the last phone calls I received were for my brother. I was driving home from work. I had finished my work day. And because of the weird conversations I had had with them earlier and the fact that I had promised my brother, I would call him when I was on my way home. I called him and he basically told me not to go home, which was really weird, but I didn't really quite think anything of it. It sounded weird, but like, you're not going to be like, you killed mom that moment. But I called home and the moment my mom did not pick up was that was the moment where I think my a pit just grew in my stomach. My mom was a single mom in Calabasas, a teacher. She like worked every hour she possibly could. And at 10 o'clock at night on a I don't even remember what day, but like a Wednesday or a Monday or whatever, she was home. So the fact that she didn't pick up the phone call when I was calling in the middle of the night was weird. And I called my brother back and he said, don't go. He repeated, don't go home. And I said, why? What's up? And he admitted to killing mom. He said, I killed mom. And my world crumbled, but I thought it was kind of a lie because he had said some stupid like that before. He'd never said, I killed mom, but he would say things like, man, I just hate her. Let me run to Mexico. And, you know, I I, it was stupid that you just don't take seriously. So in that moment, I wasn't quite taking him seriously. I called home again and she did not pick up again, which I at that point, I think I knew he wasn't lying. And I called the cops and I drove home and I found her. And then maybe a minute after I found her, the police arrived and that was that's <laughs> that was the beginning of the end i know i said peace but it it's not it hasn't been peace it such a loaded statement to say i have peace after that night because i was away from my brother but he's still executed a lot of abuse since that night so it's just i get to choose peace while i navigate those crazy moments of his further abuse i want to acknowledge how terrible that was <sighs> absolutely terrible and it was it's so weird because time kind of gives you a distance from those things but i recently did um an idtv show evil lives here and as part of it they had me re-listen to the 911 call and as i watched the show i got to see pictures of the scene again and i was like you know as much as it can leave you the like sometimes you can kind of compartmentalize a bit of it the impact never really goes away of course yeah Of course it doesn't. And I thank you for saying that. But some people don't even realize, like, it permeates every portion of your life when you're a co-victim of murder. Quite literally, the way I see everything is affected. Gory movies, callous jokes, a podcast titled My Favorite Murder. Everything is different. Well, I want to talk about that aspect of it. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about in your story. I think that it's very fascinating in the book that you go into more detail. If anyone's interested, they need to go pick up Amy's book about, you know, the section after the murder of how he used the system to delay trial and change lawyers. And oh, he's even done it in the last year. He had a parole hearing 10 days after the book came out. I got a notification. And at the parole hearing, he admitted to stabbing 90 more people. This is on a Zoom recorded call, by the way. He admitted to stabbing 90 more people since getting there in prison. He 
said my address and told me he could have my whole family killed. I mean, and it was just and then he postponed his hearing for another year or two years. So now I have another hearing in a year. So he's still doing the same thing and he's finding any loophole he can. And that's the problem is there's so many loopholes existing. <laughs> a predator like him can take advantage of. And I think a lot of times we don't hear that part of the story. Mm -hmm. It's not salacious in the same way as the initial crime itself. And sometimes if you're watching these documentaries or reading a book or whatever, it sort of just skims over mm -hmm. that part when that is part of the victim's journey. Yeah. I mean, it's almost it's actually a re-traumatization a lot of times because in, in my work, I've met a lot of victims recently. And one of the things that keeps striking me is that a lot of these documentaries or stories that, you know, true crime that are in the true crime genre, anything, a documentary, a movie, a, a dramatized, a, you know, show, a podcast, whatever it is, a lot of them kind of give you this like nice, neat little bow on the legal part, because that's not quite what people are reading or watching at the moment, or they don't have the gruesome details, right? But they are some of the most traumatizing portions of our journeys because they can be doubly as long. I mean, they can be, they can go on. I've met people that, that have been in the legal system for 12 years mm. and they just, the legal system alone is really to prove what happened to you or to see all those facts laid out. And a lot of these people that I've spoken to also do it in the public eye and just to do that publicly while being traumatized in the courtroom and having that initial trauma to go through too is just shocking. Well, and when, if you're in the court system for all of that time, you can't, the victims can't, the ones that are surviving can't find peace. You can't even heal. You can't move forward or you can only partially move forward because this other thing again is always, there's no closure. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. True crime is hot right now. The genre of true crime is booming, but the the churning it out of content and the callousness of that churning it out makes people forget the humanity behind these stories, these mm -hmm. quote unquote stories. They're not really stories. There are life there are life experiences and the way we talk about them is important. The way we talk about victims is important. And yeah, I mean, and I think that's not only just about the, the content creators, it's about the consumers as well. Yes. Well, I, the consumers drive the content creators, mm. right? Like sometimes I, we get that backwards. And true crime is entertainment. This is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about it. Like I said, we met at that panel. I read your book. You posted about it on Instagram. And I was like, oh, I really want to have this conversation because I know true crime is popular. I've taken in a ton of true crime. I understand why it's popular. There was a tipping point, I do feel like, when I started reading true crime, and I'm not trying to pull like a, I liked this band before they were popular. <laughs> but, but, yeah. except, yes. I did read like just the worst airport nonfiction true crime like starting in the 90s, I loved all that stuff. I would watch Forensic Files when it was, you know, not like a popular, all this. I do think there was a turning point maybe a decade ago of like where it went from being airport, bad airport nonfiction to becoming like a highbrow source of entertainment. And I think it's actually more lowbrow, <laughs> but I mean, is, I mean, but yeah, I know what I you're mean, like, not saying, like, yeah. you know, when HBO started, you know, mm -hmm. like became like an acceptable yes. thing instead of it being like, oh, like that's not no. what educated people read or whatever. Now more mainstream. Yes, more mainstream. And I remember the turning point for me was watching the Making a Murderer documentary mm. And I was very into true crime at that time. I was listening to all the popular podcasts and watching all the docs and everything. That particular documentary was, I don't remember, eight or nine episodes long. Mm -hmm. And they milked it. So I was like, why is this? This, this could be like a 90-minute explanation of what happened. Why? If I suddenly, it was like a light bulb moment for me of realizing like, oh, this is, we have turned this into something that's really gross and what you're consuming and supporting is important absolutely i mean and i don't even know if i remember having that kind of reaction to that show i remember being rubbed the wrong way as i listened to it because it it kind of made it like 
everything's about perspective. And we, if, you know, we listen to their perspective, or I don't remember if I thought I, he did it or not or whatever, but it's definitely, and I'll be honest, my mom was a quote unquote fan of true crime. That's what she would have said. I remember all her books were nonfiction. I think it was born. I mentioned, I think in my book that my mom had a best friend that she thought was murdered and it never became a case. And so, I, but I think she had this kind of like this justice that was due that never got served in her belly, like this fire in her belly. So she consumed all these stories. And I did, too. I remember, like, Lois Duncan. I don't know if you know. Uh She wrote, like, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer and Killing Mr. Griffin. All of her movies got turned into books. She has a really beautiful nonfiction book about her her daughter's murder. It's called Who Killed My Daughter. And I remember as a teenager, I read that book. And I wrote a letter to her. And I I was a fan of true crime, too. I would never say that now. I'm not a fan of true crime. I'm not a fan of anybody's heartbreak. I'm a fan of the genre of true crime. And I think the differentiation, I know it's just words, that is important in and of itself. I think words are immensely important. You can't go into a theater and yell fire. That's illegal. So context, words, everything matters in that sense. And I think what we're putting out there, not only, I mean... I'm very particular. I I pretty much only consume true crime, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Now. Now. It took me 14 years to get to that space. But the moment I put my story out there enough and it healed enough to do that, I now can consume it again. And it's becoming more of my work, so I'm consuming it for work, too. But I'm noticing there is a huge difference between ethical true crime and non-ethical true crime. For an example, I... It can't leave my head right now. Anytime there's a new one on Netflix or something, I watch it. For example, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. I don't know if you watched that. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. Phenomenal series. Powerful. It gave the voice to the right people. It acknowledged the horrors that had happened. But I think it was the ultimate goal was to strengthen the people. And I've spoken to the people that were in it, or at least one of them, two of them. They were happy with the result. I think that's important. Because it was victim-centered? Yes. It was victim-centric and also... The language used around the perpetrator was less glorifying. It wasn't about glorifying Warren Jeffs. It was about being very honest and blatant about the church and not really holding anyone to a higher regard or anything. On the flip side, I remember something I turned on the other day that I watched one minute of and I could not stay. I, I could not stomach to partake in any more of it. It was like, I don't even know what it was called, but the bling ring one. Did you see the documentary? I think I'm, I didn't watch it. It's about those the those kids who broke into a series of like high whatever. Mm-hmm. It was so astonishingly, astonishingly heartbreakingly bad. The first minute, first of all, the perpetrators were on the camera within the first moment, which is I would never consider that to be a good documentary. If I see the perpetrator instead of the victim in the first minute, I will turn it off because you think that's like making them famous. Yeah, I think it's kind of aiding and abetting them in their mission. I think anybody who's making a documentary and has committed a crime, the documentary might have been a goal. And at any point, we should not be empowering their mission in in the experience because their mission was obviously illegal of some sort. I will say I have noticed a trend in the media, at least, where they are not naming, like not giving a name to killers mm-hmm. as easily in or keeping their face off the screen. And I've seen that recently and I'm very thankful for that. Really recently. Like yes. maybe in the last three ish years or something. And I Oh, I'd say months. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yes. No, the first one that I noticed it was a mass shooting Ugh. and it was a couple of years ago. And I think I noticed it because I I believe that the news anchor or whatever I was watching like said, we are mm. not going to say his name or show his face. And because otherwise I don't I don't know that I would have clocked it. And so I was actually glad that they were like, this is what happened. And we're not going to give one more Mm. like minute of attention to the person. And that's amazing. I I think it takes that it takes that kind of action and those statements to to change things. I to return to that that documentary, not only did they put the, the perpetrators in the first minute on screen, but they also, in the first minute, started describing how they perpetrated the crimes. As in, well, when you're first casing a large home, da 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 This is literally the conversation in the first mm. minute of the show. I saw pure negligence in that. Like, that is purely negligent. You're not trying to equip the listeners or audience with tools to survive or ha- be hopeful or have good calm. You're literally trying to aid and abet 
for future criminals. Yeah. That is absolutely not ethical to me. So I think there are there needs to be a shift in the space, in the way we tell these stories. I recently spoke to Elisa Wall of Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, not to keep mentioning it, but when we were talking, she said something really poignant. She said, when these stories focus on the perpetrator, they're actually really doing a large disservice to mankind. Not only because we're we're forgetting all these glaring things that that like these holes in the system that are aiding and abetting them to do these crimes, but also we're focusing on the villain in the story. Think about it. All fictional movies, they're not focusing on the villain, right? Most of them are focusing on the hero or the people that are surviving and being hopeful and you're watching transform their lives into something good. True crime, all we're doing is focusing on the perpetrators, really. I mean, not all of it, but a lot of it, most of it, we're focusing on Dahmer, right? That movie Dahmer came out. Mm -hmm. When my episode of Evil Lives Here came out, I had somebody reach out to me and say, thank you for sharing your story. I'm a survivor of Jeffrey Dahmer. And he went on to share a story and we began talking and I was like, wait, what? There are survivors of Jeffrey Dahmer? Like, I didn't... What I had consumed of Jeffrey Dahmer so far, it was so sensationalized and so salacious and so all about Jeffrey Dahmer that it wasn't about his victims. It wasn't even about his survivors. I didn't even know that they existed. So I think that that is crazy to me when you really pause and think all those stories are all about the bad guys. Why are we getting more of the quote unquote good guys or the people that really have that lesson of tenacity and survival? That's what we need to be Mm -hmm. focusing on more. Do you also see a difference between like the Jeffrey Dahmer story is so ridiculously out there. I mean, not that there's a common type of murder, no, no. but like as we were discussing, like domestic yeah. violence, which culminates in murder or whatever is a, a thing that happens statistically. A Jeffrey Dahmer is just on Mars. Yeah. yeah. And like a Ted Bundy. Manson. Manson. Yes. Some of those stories are so, you, you can see why they are famous, why that is such well, a story. Like folklore, right? However, my thing is, is when I see a Jeffrey Dahmer shirt that's like, he eats me better, whatever, like something you, like I've seen shirts where like there's Dahmer's face and there's about like being eaten by Jeffrey Dahmer. At any point, I think that if no one should be able to capitalize off of a crime like that, like, I mean, to be honest, I think victims, if anything, should be able to. But and they, they're like the only ones that don't. People don't realize in all of this content creation, most victims you see in the space aren't getting paid for anything. We can't be getting paid for anything because it's illegal to pay a victim to tell a story, then it's biased. So it's a really weird space that needs change right now, I think. And in the simplest form, just the way we're telling these narratives, right? But you're not against, as a consumer of true crime and also one that shares her own story, you're not against... Talking about them? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, this is that's the first common fallacy I get immediately. They're like, well, the first people that comment to my Twitter or comment on my comments are like, well, we have to know because we have to see the warning signs. Oh, absolutely. Just how we started our conversation by going, here's the crime that happened. It needs to be acknowledged. My brother's, his history needs to be acknowledged. His mental health history is hard for me to swallow because I think he's misdiagnosed and I think he's a sociopath. And nature of sociopath, you can kind of manipulate people to get whatever it is. But that in and of itself needs to be acknowledged. But that does not need to be the whole story. And that's not where the story ends. Because I think where the story, well, it never ends, but where the story continues and needs to focus heavily. So I'm saying like the perpetrator can get 10% to 25% of every story. 75% of the story, 70% of the story, 50% of the story needs to be the positivity. I mean, like every story has a theme, right? Every book has a theme. You have a message you're supposed to be carrying away. When my children watch commercials, they can recite the whole commercial like after watching it six times, right? So what we're consuming is impactful. So if we're always consuming these stories that end in misery and horrific death and like cannibalism, but also like, wow, he's in jail. Everything was wrapped up with a nice little bow. We're not really servicing society as we need to, right? We're not giving them the messages and the lessons that need to be gained. And we're also not really giving them the truth because that's not the way it plays out. And I believe we're changing our brains. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, I used to, for years, probably 15 years, I fell asleep watching some kind of true crime. My husband and I would put like Dateline on or 
you know, any whatever it was with a number of shows that we would put on to fall asleep to. And, you know, after I had babies and I really started paying a lot of attention in my life to like what I'm surrounding myself with, like what Mm. gives me energy or like whatever. And I was like, I think this thing that I... I mean, I, I hesitate to say it, but I enjoyed, you know, like, I think this thing is actually not serving me. And maybe it did for a time or maybe there's a place, but it was definitely, I think, affecting the way I thought about things. I felt jumpy. I felt scared in my home. I felt, well, and I think I see this happening on a complete societal level. I started to fancy myself a sleuth. Right. Oh, totally. So then you can see how people are doing this online, like Reddit and oh my um, God. that they are going to find the killer podcast that seek, that seek finding the killer, which in some ways there's some good, there's a good side to that. But I think it is the same underbelly of, of conspiracy theories in our politics and in all of our things to think that we are going to find out something that the experts haven't found out. <laughs> Which is crazy, though, because it has happened. However, yeah, I mean, I think it changes the way people consume these stories and navigate their lives, in essence. I mean, because it's part of reality, these stories. To piggyback off on what you just said, I remember after the Evil Lives Here episode came out, I, you know, I'm I'm a social media person by nature. So I love to hop on. I hopped onto Twitter. I see all these crazy comments about my lips being chapped and I look like a druggie because my lips are dry. I go onto Facebook and I find this woman who is sure I helped murder my mother because there was a life insurance policy as part of it, let alone it was a tiny bit of money. But that doesn't matter. She was my best friend and that I would never harm a single person in my entire life, let alone my best friend and mother. So to receive these people after hearing my story or the Satanist who said I deserve to die as well as my children. There is, I think I say everything is a spectrum, but there is a spectrum of people and everybody's on it. When we hear these stories so often, we become callous to them to a certain degree, especially if they're being told in a calloused way. We become callous to it. You know, you are what you consume, right? You are what you eat. You are what you watch. You you receive these messages And that's why we listen to classical music before you go to bed, right? That's why people listen to self-affirmations on tape while they're sleeping, because what we receive is really, really important. I can't imagine what it would feel like to have strangers come out of the blue Mm. and try to talk to you. I mean, your your case isn't one where you're trying to find the killer. You know who the killer is. He's confessed. It was very obvious, all the things. But even to have people comment on, well, maybe you were in on it or maybe your mom, I don't know, whatever. People say crazy stuff like putting in their own theories because mm-hmm. everybody has a theory now yep. or like everyone. It makes them it makes us because I participated in this, too. It makes us feel like smart or like distance uh, people. I get a lot of like, well, why didn't she call the cops? Um, did you watch the show or I'll, I'll get well, you know, she should have just kicked him out. Well, for sure, but like abusive people find their way back in and that's very much victim shaming. I'm the first person, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I'm the first person to hop on a comment and be like, no, <laughs> that that perspective is ex- highly victim shaming. Well, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to say that. Well, no, no, no. You don't realize your words matter. Again, like as a content creator, a lot of people in my space are really bothered by the trolls. I used to be a teacher. My mom used to be a teacher. I'm like, no, no, I'm here to teach you. Like, I, I, will, I will try to school you. And if if it goes on, and most people, no one fights me, to be honest. Nobody argues when I take the time to further educate that how their view is harmful. It's just that I think that more content needs to do that rather than the individuals going comment by comment. That's exactly right. Yeah. Also, I do think this doesn't give anybody a pass, but when... You're talking about domestic violence, of course, murder, anything. People say, oh, I would have just thrown him out or I would have just left him or all the things that people say that are, uh, you know, they just they don't know. They have no Mm. idea what they would do. And it's a a self-protection to be like, oh, I would never be in this place Mm -hmm. because I would never allow myself to be. And it's false Mm -hmm. categorically. But also it's just like people's like weird self-protection. I don't know why people have to put their self-protection on the internet. I I, I literally called someone out on Twitter like yesterday because I was, I love something was wrong. Season 14 is out. It's wild. I don't know if you're listening to this season, but it is absolutely insane. And some woman was like, I can't believe this woman let her child see this man after he had hit her. 
she didn't. It was very clear that the courts were forcing the parent to like let that to have supervised. It was insane the way the the amount of facts people can ignore to give themselves that comfort. Like I would never do that. I'm a better person than that, or I know better than that. When coercive control is, you don't really know what you'll do. It, you know. And again, like with that snowballing kind of manner of abuse, you might not do something at the beginning that you would do at the end that you don't really realize because it's a buildup of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that it just takes that really thoughtful storytelling for people to realize that. What do you want? Because I know so many people who are listening to this do take in true crime. You can't escape it. It's very popular. It's escapism. It's all the reasons that we're drawn to true crime. Like, what do you want people to be paying more attention to as they are consuming it? I, You take it in a lot mm. yourself. Like, I don't want people to come away from this conversation and think that we're shaming them for no. listening or, or watching or whatever. So I, I'm curious, like, if you have something you want people to pay more attention to. We talked a little bit about yes. it already, but like... I, again, I love the people I have actually come into contact with from this space and especially the victims that are willing to put themselves out there and create this kind of learning experience for their listeners or their viewers or whatever. And one person is Tara Newell. Now, I don't I know people don't know her by name, but she <laughs> season one of Dirty John was created about her story. So she is the the woman who murdered Dirty John, the daughter, the daughter. Yes, she is amazing. She has become one of my good friends over the last few months. And something she said struck me so deeply. And every time somebody asks me something like that, I, I pull upon this this tweet she wrote. Like Sometimes it's just those poignant statements that never leave you, right? She said, if you're watching a documentary or listening to a podcast and you feel that that story is empowering the perpetrator instead of the victim, that is not worth watching or consuming. So if you're taking it in and you're seeing, I didn't watch Dahmer. I refuse to. I actually watched an interview of the actor who who played Dahmer, and he said in his interview, <laughs> you know, I really like this the script because it gave us a view of Dahmer of being a human and maybe why he did it rather than making him out to be this monster. And so I thought, okay, not for me. That would be a story inherently. If that's what the main character is taking away from that, that role, that was something that would empower the, the perpetrator. And most of the talk on the internet supported that view. I haven't, I don't think I need to watch everything to know all of it. I think what we need to do is pick and choose. And again, not to shame a person that would consume that. I do believe there is something to be learned from watching something like that, if you can, and going, wow, I see the discrepancy between this and a solid society strengthening story, right? I can see that this was a little bit negligent. I'm going to stray from stories like this. You know, this is a process. It's not like to shame someone. We're trying to make change. And again, the first step is awareness. The second step is taking action. But it's not like, hey, stop watching true crime immediately. It's just navigating the space with a certain amount of awareness and cognizance of what you're consuming and what you're propagating by consuming it. That was so good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's just, you know, I have so many friends in the space, not only just as content creators, but like producers, right? And I've even producers have asked me, so what's the urgency to your story right now? Why should we tell your story right now? Well, there's always an urgency to me, (laughs) but my brother's almost up for parole in a year. They're like, oh, okay, great. Well, timely, right? Or producers are like, I would never want you to be a fly on the wall because in this room, the way we talk about selling this true crime stories is really shocking, right? Well, what's going to sell? The gruesome details, right? Like what you said. That's because that's what consumers are watching. If we take the onus of responsibility or some of it to shift the creation of this content and to just not watch it, when we see something is strengthening that perpetrator, we turn it off. Mm-hmm. Step one, we find something else that's true crime that doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. And then we shift the way these stories are told. Yeah. And I'm just thinking right now, as you're talking, like elevating or featuring shows that are doing it well. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen personally, I've seen so many that I love. Yeah. Give, give us a list of some of the things that you think are doing this ethically. Okay. So I love keep sweet, pray and obey. I said that I'm trying to think, I mean, I love something was wrong. 
I love Sarah E. Turney's podcast. I believe I haven't listened to it for like a season, but Unsilenced Voices. There is a great documentary called A Murder in Mansfield that is by Collier Landry. He is a murder co-victim as well. His father murdered his mother and then buried him under the floor, her under the floorboards of the house he gifted his girlfriend. I mean, absolutely insane. And this man goes through and creates the movie about his own life and basically tries to heal on camera. It was really a poignant story. I'm trying to think of a... Honestly, I love Dirty Money. It's a great series on Netflix. Anything where I think the theme or the mission of the story is to change things for the positive rather than just to tell you a gruesome story, that's what that's what we should be really trying to focus on. Can you give us an update on your brother's case? Oh. And before you do that, I just want to acknowledge we did not discuss this before I pressed record, but we have not used his name. Oh, now, I did not use his name because you use a different name for yeah. him in your book than is his name in real life. And also, I, you know, as discussed earlier, I wasn't sure if we wanted to, like, elevate him in any way, yeah. you know. And so we didn't discuss it, but we haven't used his name. So I just want to sort of say that if anyone's wondering about that as they're listening. What's the status on his case now? He's up for parole again? Ooh, yeah, that's such an interesting question. So at his last parole hearing, he basically said, I heard there was a loop, COVID loophole. I heard you can I could postpone my hearing. And they said, yeah, you can. And legally, they had to educate him. They said six months, three, three months, six months, a year or two years. That's how long you can postpone it. He said, cool, <laughs> I'm going to postpone it for two years. And they said, OK, well, your, your sister gets to make a statement now anyways, even if the parole hearing is postponed, because we need to hear it. And he goes, do I have to listen? And they said, legally, no. And he got up and walked out. And do you have insight to why he wanted to postpone it? To torture me. I mean, it's always about like that. Yeah, he he. I know that sounds crazy and very narcissistic, but the whole from the moment he sat down, he said he only sat down to hear what I had to say. This is the, how it played out. He sat down. He said, I came here a bad guy. I only got worse. I stabbed 90 more people since getting here. It was mostly for money, all his words. And I interjected at that point because I was very angry and stressed out. I said, you already did the worst thing you possibly could. You murdered our mother. And he said, oh, I could do way worse. And then he recited my address and told me he could have my whole family killed. He'd have a friend visit. So the this is parole officers Zoom. are uh -huh. listening. Zoom parole. So they say, ma'am, please mute yourself. Turn your camera off. I do. Meanwhile, he's still talking, slitting his thumb across his throat over and over again, unmasking himself and jeering and like, you know, like smiling at me. And then he asks to be moved prisons, which they said, OK, crazy. And then he says, hey, there's this loophole I hear about. So at the end of that, I'm left like, I don't want to do this statement. They're like, no, ma'am, we, we need it on. We need it on recording and he'll get a copy of this transcript. So he maybe will read it. I'm like, great. And that and it, I read it. It eventually ends. I was sitting on that for a while, though. I was thinking, how the did he just threaten my life and not get any time on uh, like added? And then the evil live is here came out. And I was like, wait a second. He threatened my life years ago. Tried to hire a contract killer. The evil lives here. Producers gave me those letters that he wrote to the inmate to try to hire a killer. So I was like, I have all this proof. I'm going to call the prison and file something against him. I'm going to add more time to his so he doesn't have that parole hearing. I do. I call. I literally called 20 days in a row. Every single day, I would hear the same thing. Sergeant, blah, 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 we'll call you back tomorrow. And I said, I heard this yesterday. It was finally when I said, look, I'm becoming media. And if you guys don't take this seriously, I'm going to put all of this out there. Like, the whole process of this, trying to report my admittedly guilty brother for trying to murder me again or... On Zoom in front of on other Zoom, officers. On Zoom. And they basically said, okay, we'll look into it. I get a letter back saying, hey, it wasn't a deep enough threat. I was like, wait, what? He literally recited my address. So I called again and they're reopening the case. However, in all of this, all of these calls to the princes and everything, I found this really nice woman named Karen, <laughs> coincidentally, at the prison who was like, I'm just sick of hearing this, like people like this abusing the system. Look, I'm going to tell you this. And she told me something I wasn't really supposed to know. She said, he is up for attempted murder again. And I said, what? After all that? Hold on. He's up for parole next year and he's up for attempted murder right now? She's like, yeah, 
how is this possible? Because he attempted to murder someone in prison? Yeah, not because of me. Nothing has to do with me. Like, they didn't even give a Like, yeah, because he is up for attempted murder in the prison. And so I said, wow, that makes the threat against me even more valid to me. Like, that, that made me panic. And that's why I didn't give up on filing something against him. But I'm like, how is this? How is he even, even if it's attempted murder, how is that even, how? How is he up for parole? Like, that's insane. That's how the system works. So that's where we're at right now. With a parole hearing looming next year, I have made a, because crazier things have happened, I've made a a petition to keep him in prison uh, because I'm trying to prove that, like, I have as many eyes on this situation as possible. But it's absolutely mind-blowing that I have to take all those steps. And he is given all of these powers. Yeah. Do you not have any rights there of like they didn't have to notify you that your no. the person that victimized you has also committed another crime? I mean, is it so just... if he's convicted, I believe they would have to. I believe they would have to say, hey, his sentence has been extended. I'm usually notified of changes when they're official. So when he got moved prisons twice at his request, I was notified. Let's just talk about how the minutia is sometimes really traumatizing. I got a letter from the pr- from the prison and it said Amy, Ch- you know, Amy Chesler addressed to me and it says like blank state prison, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. and I realize it's not my brother's writing, but I'm like, oh, my God, I hope this is not a letter from my brother. And it was just a denial of my of my saying like, hey, he tried to have me killed again or he threatened me. No, that's not a hard enough threat. But even just getting that envelope with that address was was traumatizing to a certain degree. And here I am still navigating 15 years later, like confirmed death threats from a a murderer who has another attempted murder on his case right now. And yeah, I didn't, I wouldn't have known that if some random woman wasn't kind enough to just give me that little tidbit. Well, I wonder if she came to the end of her rope because I think this happens. I think this happens to other people. They're being tortured from absolutely it happens all the time and that's why i'm sharing it because i'm empowered to share it i have the privilege of sharing i think i'm this sounds crazy sometimes when i say it but i feel i'm very privileged in this space as many producers might say oh why is it timely right now i don't give up and i still get heard a lot of people don't get heard a lot of people get harassed by people in prison and are not heard and it's just a really broken system and without sharing all these pieces of it we don't know that on a whole well, sharing is like my whole platform. <laughs> like I wrote a book I called Share Your Stuff. Like I am all about sharing in this particular instance in your life. I mean, sharing could be detrimental. Have you mm. had pushback from, I don't know, family members or people who want you to get over it? I'm not being. No, no, no. It happens. Like, have you I all your sharing have, you have not received? I, my family, I have been so blessed. I this is one of the, my favorite things to share. When my book came out, my uncle, who was somebody who... My dad, I didn't paint in a beautiful light, right? He didn't deserve it. I didn't paint him in a negative light. I painted him in a very real light. His brother reached out to me after the book came out, and he was one of the people I very much feared reading it. He said, thank you for naming something that I went through at the hands of your dad, which was sibling abuse, right? And so that's what I received from my family. I received undying support, except like one family member, that doesn't really count. Hold up. Was that oh, yeah. a surprise to you? Oh, that it you're... Was, no. No, I knew he was abusive. I knew he was abusive to my mom. I knew he was abusive. I didn't really write about it because I don't have proof and it wasn't my experiences. But I, oh, my, yeah, that's not in the book. Yeah. No, no, it's not. But my my dad very much was, I mean, I have a, my mom told me a story where my dad was like eight, had a metal tip bow and arrow, put an apple on his brother's head and shot at it. It could have killed his brother, but got the apple instead. Like, that's what my dad, he would do things like that to instill fear in his siblings. And no, I I received such immense support. Strangers are largely supportive, too. I mean, I get some crackpots that are like, you need to die. But I'm assuming they send them to everybody that Mm -hmm. put themselves out there. Mostly I get people saying, thank you so much for sharing. I didn't realize my son could could get to the point, but I see all the warning signs. I think you saved my life. Or I get a lot of sisters who say, my brother was extremely abusive. I didn't even know there was something called sibling abuse. It was just brothers will be brothers kind of thing. Thank you so much for coming on 10 Things to Tell You and speaking so candidly of your life and your mission. And I just really appreciate it. It It's such a good conversation. Thank you. Are you kidding? I feel blessed to be here. 
And um, thank you. As I've said before, I feel very honored to be given um, any sort of amplification. So thank you for thank you for number one, leaving your heart open to our story, but also thank you for letting me further talk about it. Yeah. I appreciate you. I love it. I think it'll make a difference. Thank you. Oh, God, that's, that would make my mom's death not in vain. I hope this conversation with Amy Chesler gave you something to think about the next time you hit play on any true crime content. I know that it did for me. You can find out more about Amy by going to amybchesler.com and follow her on social media for more details on her new projects. Thanks for listening, friends. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening.